Forget the tights. This Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, options, and even cryptos, all commission-free. Robinhood strives to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. So that way, it becomes a non-intimidated way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time with true confidence. It's simple, it's intuitive, and there's a clear design with all the data presented in an easy-to-digest way. You can see that other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees at all. This way, you get to keep all of your profits. The Robinhood app is a great way for your children or for those who haven't been involved in the market to learn how to invest as they build their portfolio. They can discover new stocks and track favorite companies with personalized news feeds. You also get custom notifications for price movements, so they will never miss the right moment to invest. And now, Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. All you have to do is sign up at origins.robinhood.com. That's origins.robinhood.com. When it comes to investing, it doesn't get any easier than Robinhood.com. Welcome to Episode 2, Origins, Saturday Night Live, behind the scenes of Season 44. Damn you, ignorant slut. Hello, boys and girls. Well, isn't that special? Uh-oh, Gina! The coffee talk, I'm your host. Sometimes when you're president, you have to make sacrifices, so I skip the back nine. Live from New York! Live from New York! Live from New York! It's Saturday night! In episode one, we went deep into SNL's relationship with President Trump and heard from Alec Baldwin, Lauren Michaels, head writers Michael Che and Colin Jost, and others about the show's approach to satirizing the president and what we can expect politically in the season ahead. Here, in episode two, they join us again, and with the help of A.D. Bryant, Melissa Villasenor, Heidi Gardner, Keenan Thompson, and Chris Redd, we explore their mindsets, collective and singular, ahead of the season premiere and what the off-season means to each of them. A.D. Bryant is from Phoenix, Arizona. After graduating from Columbia College in Chicago, she performed in a musical improv group, Baby Wants Candy, as well as the Annoyance Theater and I.O. Chicago, eventually joining Second City as a writer and performer. She joined SNL in season 38, and the next year was promoted from feature player to full cast member. A two-time Emmy nominee, Bryant is known for her impressions of Adele, Meghan McCain, and her weekend update appearances as the worst lady on an airplane. In addition to SNL, she's appeared on shows such as Girls, Broad City, Portlandia, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, and Documentary Now. I asked Aidy if she were the kind of person who makes an agenda for the new season. I think I'm the opposite of that kind of person, (laughs) where I've really released any sense of control or agenda of what I think I can do, and I just... Even, like, I feel like every year that I tried to, like, plan summer ideas and be like, okay, here are my top five ideas that I want to do. It's just, like, they never work. They always feel a little stale. And so I really don't plan. Excuse me. They work. You were just nominated for an Emmy. Okay? I think <laughs> well, things not, are working. Not, none of those things helped me get anywhere near that. What was that like, by the way, to be nominated for an Emmy? It was cool. It was totally unexpected and truly shocking. And also, I was kind of in the thick of working on something else, so it was good because I didn't really know that they were being announced. It was just truly like I woke up and my phone was going insane. And I was like, what is all this about? So that was kind of a nice, totally shock. 
SNL cast member Heidi Gardner is coming off one hell of a freshman year on the show. She had not one, but two characters that grabbed the audience on Weekend Update. Bailey Gizmart, the YouTube teen movie critic who grapples with her emotions while reviewing new releases, a character which she created with SNL writers Fran Gillespie and Sudi Green. I don't know. It was, like, weird. <laughs> and Angel, who represents every boxer's girlfriend from every movie about boxing ever. Outside of SNL, Gardner has appeared in the Melissa McCarthy movie Life of the Party and is the voice of the cat Cooch on the stop-motion animation show Super Mansion with Jay Farrell and Brian Cranston. So did you feel like you needed a rest after last season? Yes. I don't know how aware of it I was at first, but I feel like in August I was getting solid eight hours of sleep, and I was like, oh, that's what this feels like oh, yeah. You'll never see that again. I, I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, already my body is, I think it's prepping me for the season, and I'm only getting a few hours a night. Yeah. What did you think about over the summer? I mean, were you able to put SNL out of your mind or did you really use the summer to think about it more? I think whenever I'm like, okay, I have to focus on a sketch or I have to focus on characters, they're harder to come by. When I let myself go and just have experiences and get out in the world a little more, then everything starts to like come to me and hang out with friends I didn't see and then even hear them tell me stories about their lives. And I'm like, oh, that's hilarious. And ask more questions, get curious. And then everything starts kind of organically happening. Melissa Villasenor is the first Latina performer to join SNL and was recently promoted from feature player to full-fledged cast member. Melissa was discovered when she placed in the semifinals of America's Got Talent, but has been doing stand-up, singing, and even moonwalking for far longer. She's known for her uncanny impressions, including those of SNL alums Sarah Silverman, Kristen Wiig, and Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and recently appeared on HBO shows Crashing and Barry. You got a promotion. Yeah, I did. Congratulations. Thanks so much. What's that like? You're, so you're now a capital R regular. A regular. It's unbelievable and super cool and an honor. How did you find out? Well, I got the call, I think it was like mid-July, from my manager and agent, and they said, uh, I'm part of the main cast now. It just seems, it keeps feeling like a dream. It's really awesome. There's no guarantee. And there's a lot of people who come to the show and don't make it. I mean, it's not inevitable. So it really felt great. Yeah. And it just inspires me more to work hard and, and keep doing my best. And yeah, keep being me. That's really all it is. So we're basically a week away from the new season. Over the summer, are you the type of creature that like has goals for the new season or thinks about the new season a lot? Or do you try and shut it off and kind of regenerate? I think it was a little mix, like a shut off in the sense of I went back to my projects that I work on. I mean, I've been doing stand-up for 10 years, so I was on the road doing stand-up. I filmed a short film with my friends that wrote it and directed it in July. I worked on my music because I'm a really emotional gal and I like, I'm really sensitive and I write pop folk songs. So I'm working on a full length music album with that. It feels really good for me. I have to have a lot of creative outlets. I draw kind of like Shel Silverstein drawings, mm-hmm. but like adult for adults, like really emotional. I have to place my feelings in every little spot, but comedy has been my favorite thing for so long. But yeah, I spread my wings a lot. So this summer was a really creative summer. And, yeah, I'm watching movies, shows, and I'm learning impressions and just observing, really, listening. Listening is a big part of the day. Just 
observing my family members. Who can I imitate? Who can I make a character out of? So I feel like it's just been a good balance. The summer was really lovely. Do you have a notebook that you carry around with for ideas? I have tons of notebooks. It's not organized. I toss them in my backpack. I have a lot of pens. It's just, I was just thinking about this today. Like, do I get a big classic binder with dividers? You know, one for stand-up, one for us. I don't know. I just want to be organized, but I've just always am the type that tons of notebooks and journals. I do morning pages every day. Have you um, made any decision in your mind in terms of the show wanting to do more impressions or more sketch work? The main goal for me is to try new things, challenge myself, and to make sure that what I am writing and submitting is going to make me laugh. I like making myself laugh. That's the goal because then I feel happy, and when someone performing feels so happy, they can feel it. My goals for this year, I really hope to do Weekend Update. I never have. I've done a few dress rehearsals of some of my impressions and characters, but I want to make it to air. That's kind of the main goal this year. That's a good goal. Yeah, and it's going to happen, and I I don't know. hope to get an impression out there that's in the political world. I think that would be great. I always love playing me in parts, you know. It's fun. Sometimes, well, I do a lot of impressions, but sometimes the writers, you know, I'll be like, oh, do you want me to do a, a little kid voice there or something? And they're like, no, 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 you could keep your voice. Just that's fine. <laughs> I heard you do a, a mean Julia Louis Dreyfus. Oh, true? yeah. I Oh, boy, I haven't done it in a while. But, yeah, I did it for that Zoopolis right. sketch. You know, I'm a bat. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> yeah, I like to pick the ones that are just, oh, that hasn't been done. Oh, that's a fun one. Or, or sometimes they'll just pop up on me and spring on me like I was watching Sandra Bullock a lot in movies this past summer. And she does this thing when she's really frantic, like, I, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I, no, 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 no. She's just always in a little panic, you know. <laughs> When Kristen hosted, did she know that you had done... A, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, she knew. And uh, she actually approached me. She's like, I was thinking we could do something for Update, you know? And and so we did this cute little thing. It did yeah, make but, air, yeah. but uh, it was super fun to do that with her, though, at dress. It was, we dressed the same and looked the same, but we were just playing a little prank on uh, Che. Like, we would, every time the camera would go to him, we would swap seats and we would just continue the conversation. And he's like, wow, you look different, Kristen. What are you, <laughs> what's oh, going on? And it was really cute. Here's SNL creator, Lauren Michaels. Has there been anything in recent years where you feel like you've made a little bit of an adjustment? No, I, I think I'm just better at it. I mean, when you're beginning, you worry all the time, you know? And I think the better you get at it or the older you get, you just know when to worry or, or what starts to smell like trouble or, we haven't quite got it, or that could be better, or how do we make that better, or is that stale already because we, it was from Tuesday? That must be a relief for you, though, because in the early days when you were worrying, you never let anybody know you were worrying. In fact, you were saying, we're going to be fine. In fact, in five months, we're going to be hit, yeah. and people talk about it to this day. Danny says it, and Bill Murray said it to me. They just didn't see you worry, so you had to yeah. kind of keep that inside. There's a picture I like that's from the first time I saw the studio, and, and Edie Baskin took it. And uh, I, we went down to see something with Eugene that he was doing in the studio. And there's a look in my eye of, like, that I know I'm thinking about something. And I think there's nothing as thrilling, rewarding, various words could go there, 
as just being around a lot of talented people who are alive and on fire, you know. So everything feeds off everything else. You know, if if Bill Murray would come in after having seen Saturday Night Fever, and this is before recording devices, he'd come in and he could sing the songs because he'd sat through it twice. And you'd just go, and he'd do them brilliantly, and you go, well, there's something in the air that's crackly. It feels like today. It feels like... And so there's always that coming in, and being around it and laughing. If you're laughing and the others are laughing, it's a good sign. Do you feel like the decision for Colin and Michael to be co-writers and uh-huh. have Weekend Update, right. do you ever wrestle with the bandwidth problem? No, I, I never do. I mean, if they're on their game and they just can process and deal with stuff faster. Watching them now, I just watch them block the monologue. And I don't really have to give notes, you know, like you, you go, I would maybe get to that part of the joke faster, you know, but they're already there. They can course correct. And that's sort of Tina Fey's genius at it. They can process a lot, get clarity, write it, and come back. They're talking about the monologue and the guys doing the monologue. In the family, you also have Jimmy and Seth. Yeah, yeah. So you have the Emmys. Yeah. Is there ever a Sophie's Choice moment for you? Oh, no. Both Jimmy and Seth are not here by choice. <laughs> Jimmy did it eight years ago. Seth did it four years ago. It's an odd show. I mean, as you know, I did it 30 years ago. Yes. And I thought I was free. But Bob was very, you have to do it. SNL should do it. And I didn't want to do it for lots of reasons. One, because you think about it all summer, and so there's the weight of that. And also, there's a million phone calls and that. But most importantly, it's the week before our premiere. So here you are, the ultimate company man. Yeah, well, yeah. (laughs) yeah. It's a journey. Yeah, and, and some level, of course. But... I also thought it would be, like with all these things, you get, it's so high risk, and there's so many moving parts, like the show we did in New Orleans. You know, why did I think we could do a live show in a city using their architecture during Mardi Gras? It was an adventure. And if you don't take new challenges, it gets stale. Co-anchor of Weekend Update, Michael Che. So, Michael, since you've been at SNL, do you like summers? Is it like, like <laughs> I want to I rest, or does it drive you crazy like some cast members where you just you miss the juice? Well, I do so much stand-up that you do get some of that. You, you get to scratch that itch. And I do love summers for that reason because I get to go back to doing a bunch of stand-up and you kind of cassette your schedule. And uh, I also like gearing up for summer. I get excited about stand-up and then gearing up for fall i get excited about the show and i think that's kind of important missing you know that thing because you get right back into it so doing all the stand-up i'll be sick of it by september and i can't wait for snl to start where do the lines cross it's very different stand-up is a lot less rigid especially as a writer on the show as a writer on snl you kind of are thinking in the realm of other actors and what they're able to do and what the show needs to be doing and you know, what the capabilities are, and, you know, you're kind of fleshing out a whole story, how to let people score, what the tone of the show should be. So there's a lot of different things that you have to think of with the show that's actually really fun, but once you've done it for about 20 episodes, it can get a little bit tiring because you're constantly gearing up for it. But stand-up is a little bit more raw. It's a little bit more, it's just you and a microphone and an audience, and you kind of got to make it work yourself. 
Here's co-head writer Colin Jost. And Michael, he's incredible at always demanding that something is new for him, of himself. He never wants to tell any kind of joke that was like a joke he's already told. And inevitably, I'm sure there's some that end up, you know, we have to tell so many jokes over the course of a year. I'm sure there's ones that are like some other joke we told. But generally, you, you just push yourself to try to find new ways of either telling jokes or new kinds of segments that are on the show or new guests that you can interact with in a way you haven't interacted with a guest before. And that's the fun thing about the show is you're constantly trying to do that. So it keeps you, I think it keeps you very battle ready and it keeps you sharp. The great thing about our show and the hard thing about our show is you always have to keep reinventing it. So Michael and I, you know, we feel at a comfortable enough place where we're not scared of losing our job immediately but we are always trying to get better and we're always trying to make it do things that feel new, even for us or things that feel new for the segment or feel new for the show. Even if when your things are going well, then you just become scared that they're not going to go well or the next because every week's different. So if you have a good week, you're always worried the next week's not going to work out the same. And if you have a bad week, it feels awful until you have a good week. During the summer, if you do stand up, is that a way of like keeping the craft, as they would say, alive? Or how does that all fit together for you? It's definitely partially that, keeping up on what you feel like is your craft. Because if you don't do it, you know, if you don't do stand-up for a week, that feels like an eternity. So to go a long stretch without performing, you, you scratch that itch here because you're gearing up every week and doing update. But if you're off and you're not performing, you miss it. But it's also... This isn't really why my intention of doing it, but it's a very helpful benefit is when you travel around the country, especially during the summer, but even during the year when I travel around the country, it's a very helpful way of recalibrating a little bit because when you're in New York or I'm sure LA all the time, you are definitely in a bubble. And when you go around the country and you hear what people care about, what they respond to, what they laugh at, when you just see what part of life is in all these different places, it's very helpful. It just gives you a sense of part of it's reassuring. You feel like, oh, yeah, there's so many great things going on in America that you miss sometimes when you're in New York and all you're hearing is how terrible the news is. And it's also really fun to meet fans of the show. I get very jaded because when you're here for a while in the sense of you're in that studio, so it's fun to see people who are in the audience. But you know, when you're in New York, you're either here working all night or you're home sleeping and getting ready for the next day. So you're not really engaging with fans where you're on the road. You actually get to people are coming out to see you, which is such an incredible feeling when people actually are coming to see you. You're like, wow, this is this is cool. And you get to meet people and they're they are excited and they've been watching the show and following everything. And that's just like a cool reminder that people care about the show. You know, here's Emmy winner Chris Red. Do you feel like when you're on the road and doing stand-up, it's winded your back and it informs the SNL experience, or does it kind of take away from it? For me, uh, like stand-up is a life source. That's the thing that I'm always going to do until the day I die. It's something that always centers me. I could have a bad week at SNL, like nothing could get on the table. Like I just like I'm not writing anything good, but then I can go hit a stage and feel at home and like recharge. And what is it about standing there in front of a group of strangers and doing your thing? And just telling them all your secrets. I don't, it's the fact that it's all on you, that you get to connect with an audience. I like the control a little bit. I like the fact that you get to like, 
inform when they laugh, inform how hard they laugh, inform for what the reactions is, when you're completely in tune, when everything's hitting on all cylinders, and when it's not, why is it not? I like the puzzle of it all. Like, I, I love writing and seeing if it works. And, like, if a word is taken out here, how would that affect the laugh? How would that affect, like, how people understand the story? Like, I love telling, like, stories that of things dumb I've done and adding bits to it and, like, seeing <laughs> my mistakes being laughed at and, like, oh, yeah, that's why I went through this. When I go out on tours, though, like, there's white people from all over the place. I, I'll be deep in Texas doing shows and I, I'll look at the crowd like, oh, they ain't gonna like nothing I'm about to say. I don't change nothing up. I'll say what I'm gonna say regardless who's out there. And then they'll start loving it. I'm like, oh. And that's what touring is, is beautiful for because it's like, while we're talking to the people from this platform at SNL, when stand-up, you, you're going to them. So I'm going to these cities. I'm seeing these, I'm meeting these people who don't have the same ideology as me, who voted for another person or who, like, they might not know another black person. You know what I'm saying? And, and I get to have those conversations on that stage. They get to see another version of that. And I think that those conversations, whether tough or easy, gives you a better understanding of how to write to the world that's in front of us right now, you know? But when a joke falls flat, how do you detach yourself or how do you, it doesn't slow it's you like down? A, it's like a boxer, right? When you're boxing and you're sparring, you get hit in the face and you're like, ow, I don't like that. But the more you get hit in your face, you learn how to dodge it. Or you're like, you know, I could take that hit in the face because I got four hits coming to you. You know what I'm saying? So you just learn how to like get numb to it. You get callous to like, a bit dying is like nothing because I understand the art of what I'm doing. You know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, that bit wasn't good or y'all didn't like it. I record everything. I listen back. And I'm like, oh, that's what happened. But like, you just got to keep going because the art doesn't rely on one joke. It relies on the consistent work and the consistent growth. So, and you can never just, you just never finish getting better, or never finish trying to understand it. And that's the big difference with SNL because on SNL, you get one chance. Right. You get one shot to do it right. And then after that, that lives in history forever. <laughs> like, and you're just like, that's what we did today. It's a very different thing. Like, I get to workshop my jokes until... Now, you know, I could go record a special and, and, and I could be recording this killer material and then do the special and that and then I come out. Like the taping not be as hot as I wanted it to be. Like all, all those things happen, but I have complete control over that. SNL, you don't have complete control over anything. We all know who has complete control, so... You know, like you feed the machine and stand up, I'm the machine. So it's like, ah, this is all on me. For the good or the bad, it's all on me. And I get to have the conversation with the world I get to have. And uh, it's the best form of conversation because no one talks back to you. No one cuts you off. And if they do, you can talk to them about it. Origins is brought to you by One Blade Shave because One Blade Shave offers a closer, more refined shave. Now, Jim, have you checked this out? Yeah, I actually have. The design is awesome. They actually spent over a million dollars on this thing and built like more than a thousand prototypes to construct the world's best razor. But I don't get what's so good about the design. Well, it's like this weird, perfect blend between old school design and great technology. So I kind of put my 18 blade razor aside and tried this. I'm telling you, T, it looks so simple, you don't even realize how high tech it is. So you, you tried it? Yeah, I have, but you got to understand something. This is different than what we're used to, like in shaving. This is kind of like the Ferrari of razors. It's a whole different thing. The one thing you have to keep in mind is you don't want to rush through this. It's harder to do than your regular razor, but it winds up being completely worth it. I mean, the results are just better. It's for the guy who wants 
literally the equivalent of a barbershop shave, who wants to take some time and do it right. And this delivers like literally the best experience. Count me in. I'm actually going to try this. So if you're ready to really elevate your shaving experience, try One Blade today. Listeners should go to OneBladeShave.com and enter discount code ARIGINS15 at checkout for 15% off their entire purchase. One Blade Shave. Equip yourself with the best. True story. When I first tried One Blade Razor, I gave up after 45 seconds. But the packaging was so cool. So that Saturday morning, I tried it again. This time, I actually read the instructions and decided to be, God forbid, a tad patient. The One Blade experience turned out to be time well spent. The design is awesome. They spent over a million bucks and had over a thousand prototypes to build the world's best razor. One Blade didn't set out to create a good razor or even a great razor. Their goal was to create the perfect tool to deliver the perfect shave. And after using it, there's no doubt that they succeeded. Because the one thing that One Blade teaches you is it's not just about the razor, it's about the total shaving experience. This situation is simple. You get a barbershop shave at home. My face has never felt better. And by the way, you get a lifetime guarantee with this thing. And if you don't like it, there's a no hassle, 60 day trial, no harm, no foul. But I doubt you'll wanna let go of it. It's just that good. If you are ready to elevate your shaving experience, try One Blade today. Listeners should go to onebladeshave.com and enter the discount code ARIGINS15 at checkout for 15% off their entire purchase. That's onebladeshave.com and enter the discount code ARIGINS15 at checkout for 15% off your entire purchase. One Blade, come for the shave, stay for the deep breath. Lindsay Shookus is a producer and the head of SNL's talent department, booking hosts and musical guests, as well as scouting potential cast members. She's been at the show since 2002 after graduating from UNC Chapel Hill. In both 2015 and 2016, Shookus was named one of Billboard's 50 most powerful music executives. Well, I'm a producer and I'm head of the talent department, so I really focus on bookings, I focus on talent-related issues or problems, I deal with the talent the whole week. So, you know, a lot of people don't realize that when we have hosts on the show, they come in on Monday and they're there for six full days, six very long, intense, sometimes scary full days. And so there is a bit of like managing and dealing and helping them get comfortable with the process. I've got a great department of seven people who work with me who help me manage all of it. My department works all summer. You know, we try and take like a week, you know, here or there to have a vacation, but we work all summer. We work, um, we're seeing movies, we're going to shows for bookings for the fall. You know, that's where I do like, I go to LA and I'll just see all the people, like all the agents and managers and publicists who help us book. And then we do a lot of, yeah, casting, showcases, comedy clubs. It's where we have the time to be prepared for the next season. So a couple of the girls in my office just went to the Toronto Film Festival, ones at iHeartRadio right now. Like, you know, we stay like really engaged in seeing music, movies, and comedy. So we're talking just over a week from the premiere. Yep. How are you feeling about season 44? <laughs> I'm just like still like coming off producing the Emmys and like trying to like take like two days to like get my life back together. But I mean, I'm excited. We have, you know, new writers we're excited about and a new cast member. And it's always kind of an interesting energy the first week. And it's like uh, getting the moss out of the attic. You're kind of like got to shake it out and kind of get back to like the your fighting form. Speaking of new cast member, want to tell us about it? Her name is Ego Wodum. 
and she's pretty special. She's actually, I think she just got here, and I'm going to go give her a little tour and show her around. Tell her she's free to stop by if she wants. <laughs> yeah. Ego's amazing, and we're excited about her, and we found her in L.A., and she went off in a showcase for us in L.A. this summer, and she's very special, and we're excited to kind of add her to our cast. I think she's going to complement our cast really well. What does a showcase for you mean? It, it means... Um, seeing everyone live so that I can make sure that whoever I bring back to New York, that they're going to make me proud in front of Lauren. Like there's nothing worse than like I sit next to Lauren during auditions and when someone that I'm excited about or just someone in general, like just bombs the audition and Lauren looks at me and I'm just like, Ugh. right. She was funny before. Or, you know, I thought well, she Well, there was... is the Lauren factor, though, right, for some people. I mean... People, yeah, I mean, I've seen it a ton. Like, where I think someone has a great five-minute audition, and then they come in and they make changes, or they get really nervous. And listen, it's a really intimidating situation. I completely understand why it doesn't always go smoothly for everybody. But, you know, those who can succeed usually are the ones like who are right for our show, because it is. It's about doing an audition quickly, having no, like... We don't give you really any parameter. It's just like five minutes, do your best, and and having to like have a high-pressure situation. So I'm thinking about all the comics and all the people out there who literally their dream, it's not about the journey to a sitcom or a movie. Their dream mm-hmm. is to be on SNL. What made Ego stand out for you? She's a great writer. I mean, that is, I think, usually the first and foremost, like, you know, we want to hire great writers because our cast write, you know, and if you look back at some of the best cast members ever uh, on the show. They were brilliant, brilliant writers. And some of the most frustrated cast members because they weren't. Yeah, I mean, by the way, if Lauren says, if you get hired on our show, you're funny. I mean, there's no doubt about it. You don't get hired at SNL if you're not funny and you're not talented. It just doesn't fit. It just doesn't always work out, you know? And and so there are always, there's tons of funny people. I mean, look back at the people who have auditioned for the show who haven't gotten it, you know, like Steve Carell, like who clearly is so talented and so funny. It just, at the moment, it wasn't the right fit. We also think about what our whole cast looks like overall. And we think about, is there someone who is going to bump with this person? Are they going to be going for the same parts? Is this a new voice that we're bringing in? We don't want to bring in four of the same type and voice. So then it's like they're competing for the exact same spot. We want it to be like a big team that kind of all works together and everyone can win, you know? Here's SNL producer Steve Higgins. So historically speaking, what have summers been like? Lauren's big theory is don't make decisions on a tired mind. You know what I mean? So when it's over, you have to wait a while until you can make any decisions about anything because you're still with the adrenaline of the season in you. You know, it's like never make a decision on a Sunday after a show and never make decisions too quick after a season has ended. You have to stop, count your blessings, and then go back again. You want to come back with hope. You want to come back with like, okay, I see all the building blocks that this is going to be the best season ever. That's what I do to fool myself, to go back into battle. You go, okay, this is going to be a thing that's going to be good because Keenan's still there. Kate's still there. You know, Cecily's coming in. Here. You know what I mean? All these things, all the things in play, and you just get excited to see, oh, I wonder what these writers are going to come up with because it's like this fog of war. You know what I mean? Everything's too – you can pretend you plan out the – you know, all the plans are great until – the shooting starts, and then it's things just go, and, you know, what happens, happens. Do you ever say to yourself, you know, we have to make sure that this doesn't happen this season? It's all to be a candle as opposed to curse the darkness. You know what I mean? It's like, I hope I don't start the season in a bad mood and not let people thrive. I hope that this thing that was problem last year isn't still here with this person. I hope that I can help this person get to here. I know this person can do this. 
I hope this person comes out of their slump. I hope this person continues on their high. It's more stuff like that. So the, you just want to concentrate on the positive and try to feed the positive because you can always find something that's wrong. So it's all of a personal positive goal of saying, let me help you get to where I think you could be. Not should be, because it's your journey. I want to be a Sherpa to get you, writer or cast member, to be the best you you can be, not to be a clone of me. Once again, Emmy nominee, Aidy Bryant. Has um, being a woman on the show changed during your time here? I mean, certainly in the writer's room to me. Like when I first started, I think there were maybe two female writers. And now there's such a brood of great girls who are kind of killing it. And like I've had a head female writer in Sarah Schneider and two of our writing supervisors are females. And when I first started, that wasn't really the landscape. And I think at least for bringing your ideas out of your pocket and being like, can we try this? At least for me, that's felt better to have more women in the writer's room. And then also to just, you know, when I first started, it was just a couple of girls in the cast. And now we almost make up half the cast, which is cool, (laughs) you know? And I think of when I was first watching the show and how there was three women in the cast or that kind of thing. And it's very cool to be a part of a group, a big group of women, (laughs) you know? I love that. And how would you describe the culture amongst the females in the cast? I mean, super supportive, you know, and I think we're each close in our own way and we're each really different and we all bring really different things to the table. And I think that's kind of the key to our success, too, is I don't think anyone feels I mean, I feel like a lot of people talk about like the culture of SNL being very competitive, but I've always felt like, you know, everybody's bringing different ingredients to this recipe. And like the reason why it works is like we've all got a little something. So it's been really lovely and it for me it's been totally how I like survived on the show was you know sticking close to Vanessa and Cecily and Kate and Leslie and Sashir and you know especially in my early days here. Once again Heidi Gardner. How have you approached the whole female cast member of SNL? Do you feel like there's any gender issues surrounding the show now at this point? I certainly haven't felt that and I feel like with more female writers and, you know, higher positions. I just feel like that point of view is coming across more and it's being considered, you know, more of like a female-driven sketch or like, you know, this appeals to women. No, they'll get it. I've only felt since I got there really supported and celebrated as a woman. And, And then with the other female cast members, it just feels like a very strong voice right now. Cast member Melissa Villasenor. A lot of powerful women around here. Jeez. All of them inspire me. Everyone is so different and strong, and I learn a lot different things from everyone. Example? When Heidi joined the cast, I felt inspired by her because she really sinks in a character, even if it's just one line or something in a sketch. And I was like, oh, I, yeah, I, I want to do that too. And it just made me feel really good about, you know, I don't know, just seeing her come in, it really inspired me. So when you first came, and I am sorry for the ubiquity of this question, yeah. um, but there was so much attention on you just in terms of the cultural force that you were bringing and yeah. the heritage and everything else. I mean, first Latina woman on the show. Yeah, and that's the thing. Hearing that sentence just makes me feel like, well, then I have to do everything Latina style. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's that feeling of where I don't want to let anyone down feeling. I hope that they like my comedy. But I also felt 
you know, a lot of my stand-up, if you see my show, it's not, I would say the past few years, I've been talking about my family and my Mexican family, and I don't have a lot of characters that are Mexican or, or, you know. I do have now a bit about my grandma and my mom and... So that's kind of pressure. Yeah, but you take that aside, and it's just like I'm a person that's trying to do her best, and I think... Right, yeah. but then you have Latina people saying, well, you can't just be a person. We need you to be... Right, I know, but I'm working on that in therapy of, like, that doesn't belong to me. I don't have to take care of what other people need from me. I just have to do my best and be myself. That's their deal, not mine. Right? That sounds pretty healthy. Very... I like that phrase, that doesn't belong to me. Yeah, it's not coming from me. But I want to do my best, yeah. <laughs> That's it. Right. You want to be a great cast member, and P.S., she happens to be Latina, not she's a Latina cast member. Yes. That's good. I like that. P.S. Mm-hmm. P.S. Oh, my God, Keenan. Thank God he got nominated for two Emmys. How brilliant is Keenan? Everything he does, every time he's on stage, it's like if he went, I'm going to direct films, you'd go, oh, my God, thank God. Do it during the summer. Come back <laughs> and work. Because right. he just knows it. The problem he's is he makes captain. it look too easy. Yeah. It's kind of like everybody thinks Will was, as you'll remember, Will Ferrell wasn't fetid from day one. Right. It took him a while. But I think it's also Keenan, it's taking people a while to forgive him for being on Nickelodeon. You know? He's so undeniably good that it's, I dare you not to laugh at this. I'm going to show you this Steve Harvey, and I dare you, hipster, not to laugh at his triple take. An ocular triple take, which I didn't even think was a possibility until I saw him do it. Yeah. I did a presentation. I used Black Jeopardy with Tom Hanks. Yeah. The way he has empathy towards him and the way he'll put like five layers in one look. It's ridiculous. You know? And he'll be, it's like a haiku. Each movement <laughs> is like a, a word painting of like, oh, he has sympathy for him, but he's a little bit scared. Right. And then Hanks too. But him and Hanks, when... My brother. When he, go, yeah, when he goes up to him and the way him and Hanks react is like, oh my God, that's a movie. That's a whole movie. That's a Frank Sinatra song. Two-time Emmy nominee, Kenan Thompson. When you get a sketch to go right, it's the ultimate. You know what I mean? Like, that is, like, what we're trying to do every single week, you know, every single table read. It's just so exhausting because ideas fall on the floor for so many different reasons, you know what I mean? So when one actually goes right, that is actually, like, pivotal to the conversation and society and all that kind of stuff. It just feels like I'm doing, like, a service, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not just, like performing for my own career but i'm like representing or like you know giving a healing moment almost through comedy for people that are like really really suffering out there because you know we spend all our time in 30 rock you know what i mean but like the guy that drives the bus like he's like dealing with a lot of shit you know what i mean like there's a lot of like labor union laws or this or that that comes up that's very like governmentally controlled like we live kind of you know in a protective little bubble when you're like contracted under nbc or whatever it's like just go to work and do the show and then, you know, you'll be able to, like, survive and pay your bills and not really have to think too far outside of the box of, like, just doing your job, you know what I mean? So being more, like, politically active becomes more of an extracurricular type of thing, you know what I mean? When for, like, the everyday guy, the hammer from the government is coming down almost every day now, you know what I mean? It seems like there's no, like... People aren't even worried about Social Security because there's, like, so many other issues going on, you know what I mean, in a, in a daily basis. People might feel like they're going to be deported tomorrow. Like, besides being, like, of Latin descent, if you're of any descent and you're an immigrant and you're 
your status as a citizen is in jeopardy, you know what I mean? That's a nightmare to have to live with, you know what I mean? Hiding from people, like black people are used to hiding from the cops or whatever, like making sure we know where the cops are, especially if you're driving. Like I'm always aware of cops, you know what I'm saying? But like to just like have your whole life up for grabs like that has got to be on another level. So when we do a sketch like Black Jeopardy that kind of speaks to that and reflects that and gives a moment of like, let everybody exhale a little bit and kind of like, all right, let's like regroup and still like fight the good fight tomorrow or whatever. But at least we know that we're not the only ones thinking about or going through this experience. You know what I mean? It's incredible. And especially when you get a guy like Tom Hanks who wants to do the exact same thing. You know what I mean? He wants to incorporate, you know, the ideologies of, of a guy that does have a MAGA hat on. You know what I mean? He wants to figure out like what those guys are thinking. And to well. go from that hat to, well, thank you, my brother. I mean, oh my God. It's just so perfect. It's I so guess, classic. I mean, the idea that a sketch can pull that off. You gotta have people like on that level, man. It took a Tom Hanks for that, you know, particular like topic of discussion to like score so hard on Black Jeopardy because it was iffy all through rehearsal until he like really like locked in kind of like what he really wanted to do with the character. Like still kind of play it, you know, scared and fish out of water-ish or whatever, but like happy to realize that we all have a lot of things in common at the same time, you know what I mean? And it took a while because, you know, the traditional like what I see when I see a MAGA guy is like his chest puffed out and like I believe in what I believe in or whatever. But when he brought that inkling of like, you know, maybe I'm not too sure about this, like maybe I've been roped into it a little bit and played it a little more, you know, fragile or whatever. It was just so, so, so good, you know, and played it so real. And did you hear from people like just the next day? I mean, they just... Oh, all night. All night that night. It starts immediately after the sketch goes off. It's like, oh my God, I saw that. Like, you know, that was awesome, blah, blah, blah. Like, that was hilarious. You know, we were talking about it all through the Emmys. Like, you know, tell us your favorite sketches. Like, you gotta love Black Jeopardy, right? And I'm like, how can you not? You know what I mean? Like that, being able to like take a sketch that was a spin from a popular sketch on the show is almost very taboo over there. You know what I mean? It, kind of never happens you know so to be able to have flipped it into like the black version of something and have that go well it's just awesome can you at this point are there certain things that you're saying to yourself you know I've really never done this or this and this season I really want to try that or are you just trying to like get by week after week and see what comes up I mean there's not really a part of the show I haven't done necessarily there's just people that I haven't done like I've done the create a character and do a sketch thing I've done it to where it was able to come back for a second time and I've done impressions and I've done like sing songs and you know pre-tapes and videos so like I've kind of done pretty much every aspect of the show is just like what new character can I find that people will like you know what I mean like what kind of new thing can I stew up who's gonna be crazy in the news that I can like jump on and like bring to the update desk, you know what I mean? Not necessarily crazy, but just like somebody fun, like the bishop that married Meghan Markle, you know what I mean? Like that guy was just like, I watched two minutes of that dude and I was like, oh, I, I totally have this guy down, you know what I mean? And <laughs> just the fact that people were texting me that morning about trying to do it, which is a Saturday morning, and it made it on the show that night, it's just like, it's so flattering because I know and I have faith in like our writing team and I have total faith in like our costumes and makeup and wig that I'll like get the look down and I don't even have to worry about it. The only thing I have to worry about is can I deliver? You know what I mean? And then when I feel comfortable enough to go and attack it, you know, a thousand percent energy or whatever without really like fearing am I like getting this guy correct or not, 
that's when I feel like it's like I can't lose because like I'm confident in it. Like I know I don't necessarily look directly like the guy or sound directly like the guy, but this is my take on him. And as long as I'm confident in that, I think people enjoy that. I think people are blown away also at the turnaround time. It wasn't even like you guys waited for another week. It's unbelievable. I didn't even get the first draft till five in the afternoon. And then we did it for dress within an hour or so, you know what I mean? And meanwhile, just in rumors, like the wardrobe people were like building that outfit the whole day and stuff. You know what I mean? Like it was just like nothing set in stone, but we think we're going to try this. So like, let's get this thing ready. And they totally did it. Like they're amazing. It's like, you can't wait to see what he's going to do. You know what I mean? Because he'll spin straw into gold. He'll turn foundation bricks into ornate blocks. You know, it's like, I didn't think that was supposed to get, that wasn't supposed to get a laugh. And it's never to the detriment of the sketch. You know what I mean? It's not like he goes so big that, I mean, you can get a laugh by falling down or upstaging people. That's the hilarious thing to me is he's, there's a pocket he is in right now. It's like everything he does, he gives something to it that is better than what was on the page that was it's a joy to watch it's a joy coming up on episode three of origins saturday night live behind the scenes of season 44 we'll take you through a week in studio 8h as the show prepares for its new season from the writer's room to dress rehearsal to their one chance to get it right on live television we'll hear from the cast and executive producer lauren michaels about where the show is headed in the coming season and beyond. For Origins, this is Jim Miller. I mean, it was everything. It was the center of the cultural universe. It really was, and I am not overstating that. MTV started as an all-music video cable TV channel, and it became something much bigger. It was the global youth culture brand for decades. At the beginning, it was like a cultural rocket ship. Now, things are a little different. My name's Dave Holmes, and because I used to work there, pretty often people ask me, what happened? And what I learned isn't just the story of the greatest TV channel of all time. It's the story of pop culture, before it got atomized by algorithm-driven entertainment. Join me and a whole bunch of fascinating people whose lives intersected with MTV as we try to answer the question, if video killed the radio star, who killed the video star? Follow and listen to Who Killed the Video Star? The Story of MTV, an Odyssey original. Available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.